Anyhow, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 13. I, uh, this week I'm going to talk a little bit about parenting in my sermon. And as I was doing some research on parenting, I came across a book I've never seen before on the internet. Looking up some different parenting books. And it, I wish I had this book when I was a dad. Look at the name of this book. It's called A Baby's Owner's Manual. It tells you exactly how to put your kid to bed at night so they'll sleep perfectly through the whole night. It tells you how to feed them where they will always have a great nutritious diet. It tells you how to discipline them so they will obey everything you do. I'm, I'm thinking, why didn't they have this when I was a young father? It's a step-by-step guide for raising perfect children. Do you think it works? <laughs> I, I doubt it. I, I doubt it. After raising four kids, I think uh, being a parent may be the, one of the hardest jobs ever designed by God. It's one of the hardest jobs ever given. I've also learned something for being in ministry for over 25 years. It is incredibly easy to ruin a child. While it's difficult to raise a child, it's really easy to ruin a child. You can look at it like, you know, your tree in your backyard. Let's say you have a big oak tree. I can fertilize it. I can uh, take the hose and water it every once in a while, but truthfully, it's God who does its growth. But if I want to take a chainsaw to the tree or a match and some gasoline, I can easily destroy the tree. Easily. It's the same way with raising children. If we want to ruin a child's life, it's rather easy. And that's what we're going to talk about today because David, for all of his greatness, for all of his kingship, was a terrible father. He was a bad father. And today we're going to learn from him what not to do when you raise children. How not to raise your child. Especially, you know, we're going to look at Absalom. His, one of his, says he's one of his favorite sons. If you're in 2 Samuel, describes Absalom a little bit. In verses, uh, chapter 14, verse 25 to 27. And this is the guy that we're going to talk about today. And the title of this is The Absalom Conspiracy, and you'll understand why in a few minutes. But listen to how it describes Absalom. This is David's second oldest son. It says, and the king said, uh, wait a second, verse 25, 2 Samuel 14. Now, in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. I mean, this guy was good-looking. Look how good-looking he was. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Verse 26, And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. That means about five pounds. At the end of every year when he'd cut his hair, I wonder if he'd donate it to wigs or, you know, People with cancer, but at five pounds. Then he'd let it grow the whole year, cut it again, another five pounds. And in verse 27, there was born to uh, Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman, so Absalom himself had beautiful kids. And so we're going to talk about him and his relationship with his father, David. Before we do, let's just bow. Let's ask God to really pour out wisdom because today is more of a practical lesson. So let's pray. Father, I just pray you would give us insight. 
you would help us to be better parents, help us to be better people. And Father, I just pray also we'd recognize that there's always mercy, even when we're not perfect. Thank you, Father, for your continued grace. Thank you for the perfect Son, and thank you for being the perfect Father. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The topic today is going to span chapters 13 to 18, and I'll tell you what, there is a lot in there. To to me, this is one of the most tragic sections of Scripture in all the Bible. It deals with David's internal problems, and he had many, his family. I want to give you a brief idea before we go into it of David's home life, who lived in his house. First of all, he had eight named wives, so I'm going to kind of show a tree He's got, his first wife was Michael, Saul's daughter. We have Abigail. Remember, he picked up Abigail from that foolish man Nabal who died. Then you have Hinnom Makkah, who was a princess, the king of Jeshur's son, or Geser, her daughter. So she's Makkah the princess. She's, a, she's Absalom's mom, so she's probably gorgeous because it says Absalom and Tamar, her daughter, were gorgeous, and their grandkids were gorgeous. Abital, Haggith, Eglah, and of course Bathsheba, the one we learned about last week, who David saw on the rooftop. David also had a harem of ten concubines. So you have 18 women in all. That's a weird household. Talk about tension. I probably, David, did not want to come home many nights. That would be crazy. David also had a lot of kids. Of course, Michael was never allowed to have a child because remember she did not like David dancing and she was not able to have children from that point on. And then there's um, really 11 other children from all of the other ladies. Bathsheba, that green one is uh, Solomon, the son of peace. We're going to learn about him in a couple weeks. But then you have three more sons that we're going to learn about here in these chapters, or three more children. The first one is Amnon. He's a creeper. I'm going to call him Amnon the Creeper. He's a creepy guy. And he was the son of Ahinoam. And then David's two most beautiful kids, the children of Princess Makkah, Tamar and Absalom. And Absalom's name means son of the peaceful father, which is a terrible name because this is not a peaceful relationship whatsoever. So that's his house. It's a bad house. It's a crazy home life. And to go through chapters, really, 13, 18, I, don't, I, don't, I want you to read it on your own. I don't have time to really go into it. But we're going to talk about, it deals with the repercussions of David's horrible sin. That's really what's going on in verse 13 to 18. But let me set the scene for you. And I want you to do that by turning to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is written by David himself. David knew God's Word. In fact, he wrote a lot of it. Psalm 119 is that chapter right in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 119, every verse is about the beauty and the importance and the brilliance of God's Word. If you look at Psalm 119.9, David asks a very telling question. I've I think Awana has this verse. But verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? How can you raise your child to be pure? And it says, by guarding it. By guarding it. 
according to your word. So David is saying, you, you want to have a good life? Listen to the word of God. Look right before that in verses 5 and 6. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. So David wants to keep God's statutes. And the reason why is verse 6. Then I shall not be put to shame. Well, we learned last week that David did not listen to the statutes of God. And what we're going to learn this week is he's going to be put to shame. Like some of the worst shame I think I could ever ever live with as a father. So to do that, I want to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I want to show you, God, how when, when you sin against God, and we said last week, He sees and He judges. And when God states judgment, He doesn't go back on it. And look what, uh, through, the, through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12, 7 to 9 is God's word to David after he sins with Bathsheba and he kills Uriah and he takes Uriah's wife to be his own. And verse 7 says, Nathan said to David, you are the man, meaning you're the one that's guilty. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Look what I did for you. In verse 8, and I gave you your master's house, your master's wives and your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. I mean, I would, I would have given you whatever you wanted, David. And in verse 9, then he asked, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Which David said he didn't want to do in verse chapter 119, but he did. And he did what is evil in his sight. And it, Nathan says, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with your sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore... Two of the scariest words in the Bible. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken a wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Man, that's... That's a bad promise. Ah, God doesn't mean what he says, does he? Verse 12, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan said, the Lord's put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because you did this deed, the child that is going to be born to you, Bathsheba's first child, will die. And he did. David prayed for him not to die, but he died. But what we are going to see in chapter 13 to 18 is the fulfillment of verse 10 and 12. 10 through 12. And it's terrible. And I call this basically the... I call it basically the death spiral of sin. When you sin, watch what happens. And I'm not going to go deeply into detail, but I want this is what happens from chapter 13 to 18 in fulfillment of what we've just read. The first thing in chapter 13, 1 through 22, we have the rape of Tamar. Tamar is his daughter, and she's raped by Amnon, his oldest son. He was in lust with his sister. She's beautiful. He loved her, and he went to his advisor, who's actually his cousin, and he said, why don't you act sick, have her come in, and then take advantage of her, and he did. She made him cakes, 
She came in, he closed the door, and he raped her. She leaves humiliated, abused, broken. And Absalom saw it, and Absalom's her sister, so you have her, his, her brother. And so in chapter 13, 20 to 34, Absalom conspires to murder his brother Amnon, half-brother Amnon. By seeing his sister's humiliation, he begins to hate his brother with intensity. Intensity. David hears about it, and he doesn't do anything. David does nothing. So Absalom waits two years for the right time, has a party, gets his brother Amnon drunk, and his buddies kill Amnon. Which then leads to Absalom becomes a castaway. That's in chapter 13, 29 to 14, 32. So actually, after he kills his brother, he runs away to his grandpa's house, which would be his, this is called King Talmi of Gesher. Remember, his mom is Princess of Gesher. She's, and her dad takes in Absalom for three years. So he goes to his grandpa's house for three years to run away. David does nothing but cry. That's all he does. Doesn't reach out to his son. Just cries. Joab, who's David's general, knows how much David loves Absalom, convinces him to come back. He comes back, but David doesn't talk to him for another two years. Let's him stay in his room. And then eventually, after five years, he has Absalom come into his presence. All he does is kiss him. No discussion of anything, just they kiss, so they kiss and make up. That's it. Well, in chapter 15, Absalom has probably have five years, which we're going to talk about, has a lot of anger built up, so he starts plotting to take over his dad's throne. He'd sit at the gate for four years. The gate is the meeting place where people come to meet the king, and he would sit there and meet people before they get to his dad, the king. He started turning people's hearts towards him. He goes to Hebron, where David was first king, and he gets an army up and walks into Jerusalem, stages a coup, David heads to the desert, Absalom takes over the throne. And then you get chapter 16, and that's the chapter of shame, like as shameful as you can imagine. He takes the throne, he takes his father's concubines, he goes on top of the roof, and he sets up a tent, and he has sex in front of the whole city with his father's concubines disgusting chapter 17 and 18 he knows he gets some bad advice and he knows he's got to fight David you don't want to fight David's mighty men because there's this nasty man on David's side called Joab and they get into a civil war Absalom's troops David's troops Joab gets this army to circle around them in a forest they start killing them in a forest and Absalom knows he's in trouble, gets on a donkey, starts running away. And remember how big a hair he had? He got his hair caught in a tree. It says actually his head got caught in between two branches. And he's hanging in the branches. And somebody tells Joab, and Joab gets that snicker, takes three javelin and th javelins and throws it through his chest. Takes him off of that tree, dumps him in a pit. They throw rocks over top. And the end of the story in chapter 18 David is distraught. It's, it's the spiral of death. That's what you read through chapter 13 to 18. It's tragic. And if you want to read it on your own, it's pretty graphic, to be honest with you, especially the rape of Tamar. There's many lessons to be learned from these chapters. You could say 
sexual violence always ends in violence. Like this is not an approval of male, you know, just take, this is actually, it shows you how disgusting domestic abuse is because it destroys everybody. You could say another lesson to be learned is murder is never the real answer. It doesn't solve problems. It actually buries them until they come out worse later. But the intensity and the tragedy of chapter 13 to 18, I believe, is intensified because of the terrible relationship between the father and son. It actually adds fuel to this fire of sin. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to use this as advice to, number one, how to be a good parent. Or in another way, I'm going to actually flip it on its head and say, I'm going to teach you how to be a rotten parent. We're going to learn some things from David, how to be a rotten parent. And the The teens don't get away. We're going to learn how to be a rotten child. So it's really going to be an uplifting message. It's going to be fantastic. But hopefully this will help you. Because truthfully, I think more and more we need parenting advice. Especially using the example of somebody that just did not know how to parent. So the first one, the first thing of advice when we look at the way David parented is don't practice what you preach. You want to be a rotten parent? Here's how you do it. Don't practice what you preach. Don't. David preached through the Psalms, if a person is of God, they need to walk with integrity in their house. Psalm 101 verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that's worthless. That's what he writes in Psalm 101 verse 3. Psalm 119 verse 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. So he's saying, your commandments teach me knowledge and good judgment. Well, you know what the commandments say for a king in Deuteronomy 17, 17? When you become king, don't acquire many foreign wives. He had 18 women in the house? Married a a pagan princess? He doesn't take his own advice. He says in 103, I won't set anything before my eyes that's worthless. Wasn't he the one that was on top of the roof and he looked at a woman bathing and he wanted her? David, what are you doing? He is not taking any of his advice. He's practicing what he was preaching against. So, his sons in his house, specifically Amnon, learned from his father to set his eyes on something that is not his. He set his eyes on his sister, Amnon. I mean, Tamar. He wanted her, just like his dad. He had to have her. He learned that. Where do you think your kids learn really to swear, to drink, to treat women like objects? I believe most sons learn habits from their fathers. At deer camp, around the the table when you mock each other. But then when you come to church and you learn different things, that's what you need to know, kid, but... You go home and, Mom, why does your daughter gossip or dress like a dancer at a downtown club when she goes to school? Because you let her dress like that or you gossip. I'm convinced, and I say this often, your child learns more from the stories you tell around the table than the lessons they get in Sunday school class. It's just the truth. What you laugh at at home is what becomes truth. What you accept as funny or entertainment or joy in the home becomes what your child learns 
truthfully, I'll be honest with you, and not to disparage my dad because I often lift him up as one of the greatest guys in the world, but often he would tell me how his buddies in college would, would set up across their whole wall beer cans. They'd have a whole wall of beer cans. My mom remembers going in just the smell of that rotten beer, and they'd have hundreds of Budweiser cans on the side of the wall. My dad would tell me that story, and there'd be a lot of laughing. When I was about eight or nine, I started walking around the park, and I found all these different beer cans. I had a huge beer can collection. I also thought it was funny to have a beer can collection. I also started drinking beer. Because in a sense, it was portrayed as kind of a cool thing to do. So when you hear it in your mind, you begin to do it. But you could teach all you want how beer is bad, but if you put it up there like it's really the way to be a man, it will carry over. What do you pass on that you don't realize right now? Because you are passing something on. Second thing, do you want to be a terrible father? Don't confront wrong behavior. How did David not know his son Amnon was a lustful creep? He had to know. Look at, go to uh, 2 Samuel 13. Look at verse 3 through 6. And I want you just to put your mind, your imagination on here for a second. So Amnon's his oldest son, his first son. And it says in verse 3, Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. So David's brother had a son, Jonadab. So Jonadab's David's nephew. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. That's a way for saying Jonadab was a creep. Now, have you ever, like really as a parent, and especially when you have nephews over you kind of you should have a pretty good idea of their personality you don't let your sons hang out with them because you know this Jonadab he's a crafty guy Amnon don't listen to that guy David didn't care verse 4 Jonadab's given Amnon bad advice so son of the king why are you so haggard morning after morning will you not tell me Amnon said to him I love Tamar my brother Absalom's sister Jonadab said to him lie down on your bed and pretend to be sick and when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat. Why is David really that naive? Does he not know what's in the heart of men? He just doesn't confront. It's funny after, actually it's tragic, after Amnon rapes his sister, look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, when the king heard all of these things, he was very angry. So he hears his oldest son rapes his daughter. He's very angry. And that's all he does? Just gets angry? That's it? Leviticus 18.9 says this person needs to be put out from the community. Leviticus 18.29 says they need to be cut off. It's crazy. There's a lot of parents that when their kids sin or mess up or get drunk or do terrible things, they'll often say, well, when I was their age, I did it, so I've got no ground to talk. Yes, you do. You know the truth. If you know the truth, teach it, regardless if you disobeyed the truth before or not. You still are responsible before Christ to tell the truth to your kids, regardless what you did in the past. I know some parents say, I've got no moral ground to tell my kids what to do has nothing to do with you. It's everything to do with are you preparing your child to meet the Savior? Because they have to answer to Him. 
How many parents just get angry and that's it? How many parents just yell? I've heard kids in youth groups say, yeah, my parents just yell at me. I, I just ride out the storm because they don't do anything. Normally after the storm's over, I just get away with it anyhow. 1 Kings 1.6 describes David as the type of father, you can jot this down, it's very interesting, who never wanted to displease his kids by asking why. It's hard to get into the business of your kids. But you must. Actually, my wife is great at this. I thank God for my wife. Right, Ginger? She's fantastic at this. Sometimes she jumps in. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. I bet you miss it. I bet you're pretty good at it. <laughs> what are you watching? Who are your friends? When are you getting home? What are you going to do? Why, why are you doing that after school? Your kids will be displeased. Absolutely. But that's on them, not you as a parent. I remember say, don't go in your kid's room. Why not? Why not? Be nosy. It's okay. Third thing, if you want to be a, have raised rotten kids, don't communicate with them on an intimate level. Look at the following verses and let them sink in a second. This is first, 2 Samuel 13, 34 to 39. Absalom fled, so he's going to his grandpa's house. A young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's son, sons have come, as your servant said, so has come about. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. This is right after the murder of Amnon, verse 37. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. So that's, you could say, Absalom went to his grandpa's house. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. So all David did when his son left is cry and didn't talk to him for three years? David mourned but he let his son go. Did he go to punish Absalom? Was he going to help him work through his anger? Mm -mm. Actually, Joab, David's general, knew that David missed his son. And so in chapter 14, 1 and 20, if you look in verse 1 of chapter 14, now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. means he wanted to reconcile or talk to him or do something. So he had him go get him. Verse 21, the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this, go bring the young man back. And Joab fell on his face to the ground, paid homage, and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight. My lord the king, in the sight the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose, went to Geshur, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. So Absalom's coming home to his dad's house. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. How many years? Another two. That's what verse 28 says. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Absalom was neglected by his dad for really five total years. And they don't discuss anything. Dad, you have to talk to your children. You have to. 
I am convinced nonverbal parents make for hardened children. Silence may be golden, but it also allows for your kid to learn how to hide. Hide his true feelings and his contempt for you, for his siblings. Because deep down, you know what a kid wants? Deep down, a child wants to be known by their parents. They want somebody to care. Even if they seem kind of nosy and irritating, they still want to be known by their parents. I once heard a child learns his social skills and ability to cope primarily more from his dad than his mom. It's fascinating how their social ability, they learn a lot more from their father than their mother. I never heard, I read that, and I'm like, is that true? And then you watch kids, and it's kind of true. If that's true, it scares me because most fathers in Michigan are the strong and silent type. That's not good. Fourth one, you want to raise rotten kids. Don't reconcile when your child hurts you. Don't reconcile. Be angry and be disappointed and be hurt. Allow that hurt to sink in and cause a wall. That's how you raise a rotten child. David really never offered his son mercy. He didn't even want to see his face for five years. Probably because Absalom was a disappointment. I didn't expect my son to turn out this way. I didn't think he'd ever do this. I Personally, I find, I think, being a parent or for watching parents, one of the hardest things is to express mercy to a child when they have not become the person you hope them to be. There's a naive belief with most parents, especially when they're bringing home a cute, chubby baby, that your child is an angel. They're not depraved. and They will not disappoint you. They will not fall into sin. They will not lust. They will not get in trouble with the law, but I guarantee you they will. They just will because they're human. And the question is, what happens when they do? Do you ever forgive them? Or do you, let, do you act like they hurt you personally forever? This is an affront against you. All of the years I raised you and give you so much. Do you always give them a cold shoulder when they, when they disappoint? My son, my daughter, such a disappointment, a failure. If you want a rotten kid, call him a failure. Seal their doom with judgment and act like you've never done wrong before. That's how you ruin your child. That is the surest way for them to actually begin to hate you when you act like you've already arrived and they have a long way to go. They will begin to hate you. If you want to be a good parent, memorize Romans 11.32. It will blow you away. And it's about our Father. It's unbelievable. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I want you to research it on your own. Romans 11.32 and let it sink in because it's mind-blowing. It's a mind-blowing verse and you'll understand. So if you want to avoid having a rotten child, just change all of these don'ts into one big do. Do practice what you preach. Do confront wrong behavior. Do communicate on an intimate level and do reconcile, forgive, and show mercy. I just want to go off-road real quick, not to the story, but I just want to give you something that I've, something to chew on. I just want to talk, I'm just calling these two, two styles of parenting. 
You have one that's called the roller coaster style, and then you have what I'm going to call the sure and steady model. First one's the roller coaster parent. The roller coaster parent is the parent who lets their child set the pace. So on the bottom, you have really age, years, maturity of the person. And then the, on the left side of the chart is the volatility, emotional volatility of the child. When, for the roller coaster parent, the child leads the way. When they hit highs, they're going to hit highs, they're going to hit lows, they're going to hit highs. Children do that. They hit highs and lows. But the roller coaster parent is a mirror to what the child has, has displayed. So when the child's at a high, the parent's at a high. Man, you're a great kid. But then when a child hits a low, the parent responds in an angry way. Then they hit a high, oh, my kid's great. And then they hit a low when they go bad. And then what happens, after a while, they don't go as high because they know the low's going to come. So actually, this roller coaster parent becomes kind of negative the rest of his parenting years because he knows when's going to, next shoe going to drop. But basically what happens, the child never really learns how to level out because the parent is reactionary. And then what happens, that child becomes a volatile parent. Then you have the sure and steady parent. This parent leads the way, sets the pace. Their goal is conformity to Christ. You can read that in Romans 5, 3 through 5, where adversity should lead to patience, perseverance, and hope. And it's, it's, a, it's a slow ascent into maturity. When a child gets on a roller coaster, the parent isn't following them in their insanity. So when they're in high highs, the parent doesn't go there. They get excited, but they don't say, man, we've arrived. They understand there's also going to be low lows. When they hit the low low, the parent doesn't go hog wild. This is terrible. They remain calm, communicate clearly, issue discipline consistently to all children, and they don't take the emotional bait of the roller coaster. What's the emotional bait? Here's a child's emotional bait. A child will say, I hate you. Don't take the bait. It's not true. Child will say, you're a terrible parent. Don't take the bait. Child will try to get you to say they're always right when the, tea and the teachers are always wrong. Don't take the bait. It's a roller coaster. Help them level out and learn self-control. It's really what that is. It's self-control. And you control your emotions. Hopefully by the time they get out of the house, they will be mature, steady, and not emotional creatures. So that's how to be a better parent. Let's go to how to be a how do you be a rotten child? Absalom gives us some great advice on how to be a rotten child from the inside out. And I do this because I am a uh, I like to give all sides a bludgeoning. I, I bludgeon the parents so children it's time to be bludgeoned. David it was a bad parent. I'd say he was even a dumpster fire parent. But Absalom's not, ex he's not exempt from blame. He knew how to be rotten. And if you want to be rotten, here's how you do it. Number one, bury, which is kind of means hide, push down your true intentions about things, your true feelings, and your true ambitions, especially if they're evil. Hide. Because you got after, after Absalom's sister was raped in chapter 13, he knew Right away, he wanted to kill his brother. It took him two years. It took him two years, but he was plotting for two years. Why didn't he go to his dad and say, Dad, we have to do something about Amnon? I can't believe He didn't. He plotted. He stood alone. He lied to his dad in chapter 13. 
to get Amnon to go. Look at chapter 13, verse uh, 24. Well, we can begin in verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Belhazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. So this is kind of like their sheep shearing party. They're going to have a, fe- it's a festival. It's his party. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. Meaning, Dad, I want you to come. He, he, I think he knew his dad wouldn't come. The king said, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go. But he gave him his blessing. Go ahead, have a great time. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with me. And the king said, Why should he go with you? I'm sure he knew there had to be some feud. But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Because he wanted to kill him. Because look at verse 28. And Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. When he's drunk. And when I say, strike Amnon and kill him. Do not fear. I'm not, have I not commanded you? Be courage and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. So he plotted for two years to kill his brother. And lied to his dad. Buried his feelings. In chapter 14, verse 33, after he was not allowed in the king's presence for 33, or for five years, in verse 33, Joab went to the king. This is 1433. Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king, bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So Absalom is bowing for David before David, knowing the next chapter he's going to betray him at the gate. He's hiding his hatred, his rebellious heart. Throughout his life, Absalom was secretive. He was a player. He was a poser. He's putting on fronts. He was a backslapper at the gate. And this is one thing God detests, a person who is good at lying and keeping his intentions hidden. Proverbs calls these sort of people sinners who entice and hide behind the bushes to pounce. When you become a good at hiding, especially to your parents, even to your siblings, it will come out, but usually with the wrong crowd. I would rather have my kid explode in the home and be a wreck in the home than when he's out with his friends. I've often found when they're younger and they kind of get go crazy in the home, you'll go to class and you'll ask the teachers, how were they? And they said, no, they're pretty respectful because they, you know who they are in the home. So if you are a teen, do all you can not to wear masks because eventually they will come off. And usually it's the wrong time and it's usually after you've been drinking truth serum called alcohol. The real you comes out. Sometimes it's nasty because you've been hiding it. and You haven't had a chance for it to be cleansed or disciplined. Second thing, you want to be a rotten kid? Bad mouth and belittle the authority that is put over you. So God gives us authority figures. Specifically, the first one is our parents. Absalom in 2 Samuel. Look at 2 Samuel 15, 2 to 5. Watch the language. This is after he went to his dad's house and kissed him, bowed, and his dad kissed him. Verse 2 says, Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. This is where people come in to basically, this would be like the town hall where deals are struck. He'd stand beside the way of the gate. When any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, 
Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good. They're right. There's no man designated by the king to hear you. Like, oh, you got a great point, but nobody's going to listen to you. It's too bad. Verse 5, then Absalom, or 4, then Absalom say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. So what he's doing is he's subtly, passive-aggressively ridiculing, betraying his dad. Oh, if there was a good king. Meaning his dad stinks. He's bad-mouthing his dad. It's funny, there's a story about Elisha the prophet. Forty-two guys mocked the prophet of Elijah, called him bald head. He sends two she-bears to kill him. Careful how you treat people in authority. Careful how you treat your parents, your teachers, your coaches. Third thing, you want to be a rotten child is defile and defame your parents' reputation, your family's reputation. Do shameful things. 2 Samuel 16, 20-23 is horrible. Most, I think it's one of the most reprehensible things in the Bible where Absalom sleeps with his father's concubines. Some of you in here are furious with your parents and you dream of their demise. Why? There is something in people who want to overthrow those who are superior. It's in our culture right now. It's incredible. We just want to overthrow and rule. But God placed authority for a reason. I think it's really, it's epic levels in our, in our country, from coaches to teachers to governors to presidents. Scripture says to honor, to pray. But the rebel's heart only wants to profane and, def- and defame them. Be very careful how you decide to publicly express your disdain for your parents and those in authority. When you do, it says more about you than it says about them. So watch out. So the story ends. Absalom's on the run. Joab takes three javelins, plunges them deep in his chest because he rebelled. Joab shows no mercy. And then the reports come back to David. Look in chapter 18, 31 to 33. So maybe this is tragic. I can't imagine this as a father. So verse 31 of chapter 18, And behold, the Cushite came. He's one of the guys that saw Absalom die. Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you, meaning your son Absalom who rebelled against you is dead. Verse 32, the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of the Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. He got it. He realized his son died. And so it says, And the king was deeply moved and wept or went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. wonder how much of this grief is for his son and how much is it regret over his fathering. Had to be a terrible day. But if you look at the pain in his heart, I think he's also displaying the way God feels every time somebody sins. The sadness over what we could have been. 
sadness over what we've done and the effects it's going to have on everybody else. David is displaying, I think, the godly hurt of God's heart. The sadness over what could have been the terror of losing a son. And I think God's heart would say this to us every time we sin. Oh, my child, put your name in there. My child, would I have died instead of you? My child, my child. That's when Jesus looked over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you in as a hen gathered to chicks, but you would not. So if you've ever sinned, put your name in there because it's true. But God went further than David because his heart allowed his son to die instead of you. So when it says there, would I have died instead of you? He did. That's the amazing thing about God. He did. He sent his perfect son as a substitute to give sinners another chance. And the way I know is because when Jesus died on the cross, he yelled out, it is finished. What is finished? Somebody else died instead of you. It's the most amazing story in the world. Where are you as a parent? Have you failed? God sent his son to give you another chance. Where are you as a son or daughter? Have you failed? God sent his son to give you another chance. If God can show you mercy, why can't you show those in your own home mercy? I'll say that one more time. If God can show you mercy, why can't you show those in your own home mercy? Because honestly, we're all rotten. That's why Jesus had to die. Let's pray.